Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And Editor Drew Taylor. Hello, hello. Today we will be talking about Soul and Wonder Woman 1984. Both films arrived this past Christmas weekend on ver- on uh, streaming services, Soul on Disney Plus and Wonder Woman 1984 on HBO Max. And so a lot of people had a chance to check out these movies, which were both originally intended for theatrical release. And then the pandemic hit and the studios kind of scrambled. Um, but we're excited to talk about both of them. So we're going to start things off with Soul, uh, which is the new Pixar film and new film from Pete Docter, who I think we should take a moment to talk a little bit about Pete Docter, who doesn't, you know, Drew, I noticed you over the weekend saying this guy deserves more credit. And I think you're right. I mean, when you look at his streak from Monsters, Inc., to up to was his next one inside out after that uh yep inside out and this inside thing. out and now soul that's that's a pretty pretty decent range of films right there <laughs> yeah and he came up with the idea for wally before handing it off to andrew stanton so we can also give him some some mad props for that but yeah why i mean i think it's amazing Wally. what why didn't he direct wally well, his version of Wally was different, and I'm sure this will be a 8,000 word article at some point on the site. But um, it was like a, it was called Trash Planet, and it was about uh, this race of aliens that, in a kind of uh, Planet of the Apes style twist, were revealed to be humans that have had kind of de evolved throughout the years. And I think it was just very hard to kind of wrangle that idea. I know that Pete's version was like Spartacus, where the Wally would sort of inspire a robot uprising. And um, so I think it was just too complicated and he gave it to Stanton and Stanton made something super cool from it. But yeah, it was, it was Pete's original idea. So that guy, amazing. Whatever yeah, I mean, anyone says of... de-evolve, I think Goomba. <laughs> well, you know, you can actually see what those people were, were going to look like. We were just talking about some of the shorts before we started recording. The lifted short. I don't know if you remember that one yes. that Gary Rydstrom did. Those blobby characters were were the blob people from that version of Wally. So there you go. Makes sense. I mean, it's it's interesting when you look at you know not just Soul, but when you kind of put it next to Inside Out, with Pete Doctor being like, I want to do these very metaphysical ideas about our identities and you know the way that we the way that we choose to live. And doing it in a, a way, but also doing it within the frame of like, also children need to see this movie. <laughs> like this is a film that children, like I don't right. think Soul is, I think Soul is kind of the first Pixar film that could arguably say it's really more for adults than for children. Like I would think, I think children might have a harder time with Soul than, even then with something like Coco, which is kind of like, it's a family, they're skeletons, they're under, you know, it's the day that we're going on an adventure. And that you know, was the like, night that the skeletons came alive. It was the night the skeletons came alive. <laughs> <laughs> the bones are them, bunny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just doing Tim Robinson bits. This is delightfully <laughs> off the rails already. Already off the rails. But I like the fact that Pete Doctor is, is sort of... Uh, trying to do these very heady ideas, but still do them within the framework of, a, you know, a fran- uh, not even a franchise, but like a Disney family film. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, there's some, we, I've done some stuff for the site where people have talked about how it was going to be like a heist movie originally. Like it was all in the soul world. It was kind of an Ocean's Eleven 
And then very interestingly, uh, one of my recordings had a little extra recording that I was not a part of, but the uh, story team was talking about at one point, the entire movie was set at a like Hilton and that it was like a self-help group. And that, so there were even weirder ideas that somehow permeated for soul that got netted out, which is amazing. I think. And amazing that, you know, Pete started running Pixar during this time too. He was named chief creative officer after the whole Lassiter thing. So the fact that he's shepherding all these other projects and doing the movie is something that I think is also worth noting uh, as well. Yeah, I guess, you know, a good, I guess also, you know, my review is on the side and I thought Soul was pretty great. Um, you know, what did you guys think about it? I mean, just in general. Oh, Adam, why don't you tell us what you thought of it? <laughs> I liked Soul. Come on, man. <laughs> I thought it was fine. Uh, I don't know that I loved Soul, although I do think I probably need to watch it again. Um, it, it was that weird thing of, so for like my critics voting group, like we had it on like a timer. So you're just kind of like forced to watch it at a certain time. And so it wasn't necessarily like the ideal time for me to sit down and watch Soul. And it was kind of sandwiched in between some other stuff. Um, but I enjoyed it. I, I think, I agree. I think it's the most mature movie Pixar's ever made. I love the score. I love the craft of it. I think it's a little, and again, I need to see it again, but it, to me, it's like a little unwieldy. Like once it goes into the body swapping thing, it feels like it's a bit of a different movie. Like the whole film thing feels a lot like a James L. Brooks movie where it, it's kind of not formless, but like the structure of it is a little bit, uh, it's not a straight line that goes, you know, you can, you can't clearly see the arc of like where it's going and what's going to happen. Uh, once you get to the end, but along the way, you're dealing with a lot of really heady themes like that entire barbershop scene. Um, I'm not sure it necessarily even moves the story forward, but it moves the characters forward. Uh, and it's stuff like that that I found really rich and rewarding. But as you're like watching and experiencing this, it's a, it felt to me, it felt a little bit disjointed as you kind of kind of went along. But the bits and pieces of it, I, I liked a lot. It was just kind of the whole of it was a little. Um, not underwhelming, but it, it it didn't it didn't like Koala. It, it didn't like climax into this big like crescendo of like emotion and stuff that I I kind of feel from some other Pixar movies, which I don't even necessarily think is a bad thing. Someone was asking me if it was sad if I cried, and I was like, no, I didn't cry. And they're like, oh, so it's not sad. And I was like, well, it's sad. It's more like existential dread, because um, it's a movie about what does life mean, uh, which I think is is pretty heady for Pixar, which tried to tackle what is my legacy in Cars 3, which was just baffling. <laughs> like, when do I retire? <laughs> Children, come and see this film about deciding when it's time for you to retire and leave the field. <laughs> I think this one thematically was a bit more, I mean, that in and of itself, trying to tackle what is the meaning of life is ambitious. And I think they su succeeded more than they failed. But to me, I think as a whole, it didn't necessarily fall in the way that um, some other Pixar films did for me. Like Inside Out, I think, for example, I think really coalesces into a really tight uh, emotional climax there. So, Yeah, I, I mean, Matt and I have talked about this on Slack before, but I, I think that those weird little transgressions and tangents and cutaways and things are kind of what makes the movies so special because Pixar is so story focused and they are so you know, if something is set up in act one, then it has to pay off in act three. And there aren't really a lot of, the, there's not a lot of that stuff in this. And there's sort of 
throwaway dialogue about Joe's relationship with this woman who we never see and he never, mm-hmm. you know, circles back on and all of this stuff. And and to me, it that's another reason why I feel like it's a more mature Pixar movie is because it's not it's not as wed to that stuff as it usually is. And I thought that was just really wonderful to just have that kind of like breathing room a little bit to go down these kind of wacky avenues that that don't necessarily contribute to the final story but are just sort of beautiful little filigrees in this story about like appreciating life yeah i think the fact that it is it's a little unwieldy sort of plays well into the theme of the film which is that life is kind of unwieldy you know that you know you have moments that scare you but also make you feel alive and it's the little it's it's the little things rather than you know, this is your purpose and this purpose is why you are here. And I mean, cause that to me is a more story, like that would be the setup payoff. Like, oh, I was this and I was meant to do that. And so, and Soul is kind of taking it in a different direction that I think is surprising and also kind of welcome. Yeah. Um, I think the sort of the thematic conclusions that it comes to are really rewarding and, and life affirming. And I know that some people, I had a friend of mine, he didn't really like, and I won't get into the ending because I don't want, I mean, the film did just come out only a, a few days ago and I don't want to spoil it for people listening to this podcast. Um, but the ending could have gone one of two ways. And Drew, you kind of, you talked with, uh, you know, people can check out Drew's interview with the filmmakers about them talking about the other ways this could have gone. Right. Um, and it's very clear it could have, it could have gone a different way, but I like where it ended up because again, I think it, if you're going to make a thematic uh, argument about what does it mean to be alive? I think the ending is sort of the the true the best way to go with this film. Right. Yeah. It seems like the ending was very much in flux, and you know there was another Pixar movie earlier this year called Onward that um, we all saw as well, and that I know that ending, which I think really works and makes the whole movie sort of worthwhile. That was very much like a fixed point, and the rest of the movie they were kind of getting to, and this one felt like that ending was something that they were working on the entire time. Um, so it's, it's sort of interesting in that respect too. I wonder Adam, if they had had some, you know, powerhouse ending that they were always working from the entire time, if that would have made it land a little bit better for you. Well, and I'm not even saying that like, I wish it were tighter or cleaner. I'm just saying it hit me differently. Kind of like, mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about cloud Atlas before. Like when I was watching cloud Atlas, I had to retrain my brain how to watch movies because cloud Atlas plays like a symphony because it rises and falls and it has like crescendos at like 45 minute markers. And so you're trying to like, you're, you're trained to build, you build out act one into, you know, act two is the turn and and the changes and you're building to this big, you know, everyone's moving towards the same point in act three. That's not what happens in cloud Atlas. And that's not even really what happens in soul. I'm, I don't think because it, as you guys said, like it could go one of two ways. Um, and those ways, even from a plot perspective are, are complicated and how they affect the rest of the film and, and what else is going on in the film. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, the, the oh, ending ahead, is Drew. part of, part of what's people are being up in arms about on Twitter. I don't know if you've, if how much of the discussion you guys have. I haven't heard, seen that part the, of the discussion. Yes. The idea that he would, he would potentially will say sacrifice himself for a woman is something that people are up and all right let's about. get in let's just get into this so we're already <laughs> into it. i'm just i'm already annoyed so we're just gonna get into it mild spoilers ahead for soul um so in the film jamie fox voices joe gardner who's a jazz musician he's a black man uh he's also and and he's about to get his big break he falls down a manhole cover and kind of die he goes into a coma 
basically, um, and ends up in the soul world instead of he doesn't want to die. So he kind of fights his way into the great before, which is where souls come before they are born and come to Earth. There he meets 22, who is voiced by Tina Fey. And the argument is that 22, and then so then at the, at the, at the turn into the second act, what happens is, is that Joe and 22 head back to Earth, but they, their bodies get mixed up. And Joe lands in the body of a cat, and 22 lands in Joe's body. So Joe starts talking, although only Joe can hear it this way, as a white woman. Everyone else still hears him as, as Jamie Foxx. And so the argument is that you're having a white woman voice a black man. The problem with this argument is that the film goes out of its way to contextualize that 22 is not a white woman. Or, and that this voice that she has is a hypothetical construct. They even take time to have a little brief conversation where Joe is like, why do you talk like a white woman? And she's like, I don't, this is just a hypothetical construct with theoretical existence. I could talk like anything. And then she proceeds to do like different voices because she could talk like anything. They just chose this for comedic effect. And so when 22 lands in Joe's body, it's not that like, hey, a white woman is now the voice of a black man. It's that, no, this soul that happens to speak with Tina Fey's voice is in the body of a black man because it's it's comedic. It's a, it's a juxtaposition of, we know what Joe sounds like, now he sounds different. So it tells us that 22 is in his body. But the argument that people are making is like as if they had cast Tina Fey as Joe. That would be right. the argument. That would have to be the argument that you're making, that they cast Tina Fey as Joe Gardner and not Jamie Foxx, which they did. And so it kind of, when you, when you take out all that context, to me, it shortchanges the story and it shortchanges your argument because that argument does have merit when it's applied correctly. Like I, I agree that Jenny Slate should not have been voicing Missy on Big Mouth. I think that's a perfectly valid argument, and I think it's good that they change it up. I don't think Hank Azaria should be voicing Apu. They changed it up. I think that makes total sense. But in the context of Soul, that argument doesn't hold water because it's not his. That's not Joe's voice. Joe's voice is Jamie Foxx. It's just for a period of the movie, for both comedic and narrative effect, they made it Tina Fey, not because this is good, but because they're doing a little body swap comedy. Right. And the other issue is, and somebody put this on my Twitter over the weekend, that it's an animated movie, the third animated movie, where there's a Black character who is disembodied or transformed in some way early on in the movie. And they were pointing out Princess and the Frog and Spies in Disguise. Um, but I don't think that argument really holds water either because he's there the whole time, you know, physically and, you know, sort of psychologically and it's all about his process and her awakening to what earth is and you needed that aspect of it and there are even articles written where they don't like that he's the little soul guy for part of the movie and i just i don't really know what that is about either i don't know if either of you <laughs> want to talk to that controversy as well i mean i guess you know i can kind of see where you're coming from it's like don't stop turning black characters into cute talking animals, I right. guess. But like, I mean, I don't know. I like it the is Emperor's new groove the Emperor's new groove turns David Spade into a llama. Like I don't <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it's just it's a it's a kind of a little conceit. I get what you're I get what they're saying. And 
but I also just feel like it also depends on how it's handled. Mm-hmm. And like, even though he is now a cat, like that part of the film allows Joe to see certain relationships in a way that he wouldn't have been able to see them before. So that's the thing. The entire point of the film is that this non-living being who has no interest in life can only grow to appreciate life by being a living being. And so that's 22 in Joe's body. And Joe learns to appreciate the life that he had by seeing it through someone else's eyes. And so that's, you know, that's the necessity of doing that body swap. Um, And I think, you know, it obviously becomes problematic. I think it's problematic for people, not because of soul specifically, but because of uh, maybe a trend line of these things. Um, And I think it's progress that Pixar is making, you know, its first uh, film with a black lead. And and And, and look, uh, just just as a quick aside, this is three white dudes talking. So we could be completely off base. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not saying like we're right. Like it's three white dudes talking here right now. So, but I'm sorry, Adam, cont- continue. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I agree. I do think it's probably frustrating to see black care. I, I mean, I think princess and the frog is a solid example. Like she's a frog for most of that movie. Um, and it would be kind of disappointing as, uh, you know, to see, uh, that kind of representation in there. But I do think Pixar, uh, you know, uh, co-directed soul is co-directed by Kent powers, they did go to great lengths to include a bunch of uh, people of color in the the filmmaking of this uh, and to make sure the portrayal of Joe was authentic. Um, I don't know. I think it's a confluence of a bunch of different things, but I do think for the story itself to work, you have to have that body swapping aspect because at its heart, or regardless of race or gender, um, it's the story of a non-living being learning to appreciate life and a living being learning to appreciate, appreciate the life he had and not the life that he wishes he had. Yeah. Right. Well said. Well said, Adam. <laughs> the soul hater got it right. Yeah. Well, where does soul rank on your Pixar list? Have you have you done that yet? I did it. I kind of redid them today. I, I, I put this list together years ago, and I've kind of been noodling around with it uh, ever since and kind of updating it and adding uh, other ones in. Um, but today I kind of took the time to kind of go through it line by line. Um, and I still stand by Cars 2 as the worst film that Pixar has ever made. <laughs> Is that correct, Drew? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I will, correct. I will, I will always love like Adam. This was like I think what your first time going to Pixar was for yes. Cars too. Yes. And like you, you're sitting to these despondent. I think I met ant- Drew there actually. Oh, okay. The oh, oh, yeah. 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 And and you're talking to these despondent animators. It's like so. We're trying to figure out car death. <laughs> what does it mean for a car to die? <laughs> so they were very proud of the car death, actually. And that oh, was a okay. point that they were excited to talk about. <laughs> Is there even a car death in the final movie? Yeah. Yes, because they well, torture that guy to murder death. a car. They're <laughs> oh, like, yeah, I have this right. device that will murder cars. And it, like, shoots a laser and the car, like, explodes and dies. <laughs> I will say that trip was nice. I got to talk to Michael Giacchino, who was a delight. And uh, Emily Mortimer, who was super nice. And then we interviewed Larry the Cable Guy, and that was strange because he was like using his normal accent. And then, like, you would hear him turn it on, like, go into redneck mode, and then, like, out of redneck mode, which was oh, just God. a thing. Um, but right now, I have Soul at number nine. Uh, okay. So, and I feel like upon rewatches, like, it would probably rise. But, it, you know, as it stands right now, I couldn't really. In terms of my personal list, I couldn't really put it above Coco or um, Up or um, like The Incredibles. So, is it on your top ten it. list of the year, uh, Matt? It is on my top ten of the list of the year. Okay. Yeah, I rewatched it with my wife over over the weekend, and it held up really well. Um, 
And I, I just, I, it, it just works. So like, I, lo I love the score. My wife got me the, uh, the vinyl of the score oh, nice. for Christmas. I'm really excited to, to listen to that. But I just feel like it really, not just the story. I love how the story plays out, but I also really love from an animation perspective, how it uses photorealism to its advantage. Like I remember, oh uh, gosh, it might, might've been 10 years now or seven, Drew will probably know this, but like there was that short, the blue umbrella, and that was like very that was leaning very that was heavily. attached to cars too that was attached <laughs> to cars we did too. interviews with it. we did interviews for that on the cars too visit. <laughs> but it, but that film that was very big on like photorealism and like you get more of that photorealism in like piper um but sort of seeing but like and it's not that pixar has like a skewed photorealism but it's like more like when you see i was thinking more of the blue umbrella because it's a cityscape whereas like so when you see something like the good dinosaur which also has that that photorealism um, it's more of a nature thing. So to see it in a cityscape, I was really impressed by the way that blended together and just how much is happening. And I remember I did the the press day for Incredibles 2 and they were pointing out like how difficult it was to do linoleum floors <laughs> for, the, for the house. And then like you just like, but the, and then when you, and that's the thing, like when you're watching these movies that you kind of take for granted is that none of this exists. None of it is real. All of it has to be animated and generated, every room, every scene. And it's really impressive. Like I, I like just like you go into Joe's apartment and it's like wood floors. Like it's nothing special as an apartment, but it has all these great little details that like really bring it to life. And so from an animation perspective, I really, uh, really appreciated it. Yeah, I wonder how, you know, for a long time, uh, Lee Unkrich was developing a movie. About, it was a murder mystery set in a New York high rise where all the characters were the, the pets of the people in the building. And I wonder if some of that kind of leaked into soul either with the cat character, obviously, and, uh, and all the kind of like New York -y stuff. Cause I'm sure they were going to do some crazy stuff with that as well. Was that scrapped uh, after secret life of pets? I believe it was. Yeah. But Bob Iger writes about it in his memoir. Um, and, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll, I'll return to that <laughs> concept at some point and try to get Lee to talk about it. Cause I just wonder what that was going to be, but obviously a, a New York sort of Pixar movie is so cool. And, and Pete has talked about, you know, they did want it to be really photoreal, but also have that kind of Pixar magic, which I think you can totally feel. Cause I think part of the good, the, the less appealing aspects of the good dinosaur is that it is just so photorealistic and the characters are so cartoony and there is like a weird kind of disconnect there, but I thought, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. But, but I think that soul is all of a piece um, and works beautifully. Um, so I can't wait to see your list, Matt, now see where oh, soul ranks. Yeah. <laughs> Screw math list. <laughs> Harsh. Oh, no, I, I think feel. Soul is is their most thematically ambitious, but also I think one of their most formally ambitious, because you also have Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and John Patisse, these two very different scores for the two different, very different worlds, and and then the different animation and the great beyond for the Soul counselors and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it felt like the the sort of experimentation that you would see in one of those shorts, but in an entire movie. Like a one lot of could people say it felt it felt like a Pixar untethered by John Lasseter. That too. Yeah. I wonder if this would have ever gotten through in the Lasseter era. Um, it feels a bit like daddy's gone and like, let's play and do something strange. Yeah. I think the next few movies are going to feel like that. And I can't wait. I really, 
I, I've been pushing this idea in a lot of the things I've been writing about that this is really Pixar 2.0 and that it's going to be excited and an exciting few years um, to see how this all plays out. Speaking of Lasser, I always like to go back and sort of like, you know, when I see a new Pixar film, I, I think it's a good habit to sort of go back and look at their older stuff just to see how much it's changed. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I was looking through Disney shorts and I was like, oh, knickknack, this little short film, like that was like made in 89. Yep. Um, and like, it's, and it's like, oh, wow, this is really like, they're using very big shapes and things to make this computer animation. And it's very simple, but groundbreaking for the time. But the plot of it is this, this snowman is super horny for the woman that went outside of his <laughs> snow globe. And I was like, yeah, and, that's directed by John Lasseter. <laughs> yeah. And did you know that the, the, at one point, all the female characters had giant breasts and they actually went back a few years ago and made the breasts smaller on all of the characters. Wow. So, yeah, somewhere I have a tape of the original one that, uh, you know, but yeah. So just keep that in mind, too, for that super horny. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of amazing. It's like, what does Star Wars change? It's like, well, we changed whether Han shoots first. And what does Pixar change? We changed the size of the breasts. On the <laughs> <car made. sighs> Gotta love it. Um, so, so, well, Drew, you asked me, where does Soul rank on your list? Oh, well, my list, which is just too, it's too hot for Collider. It can't, sure. cannot, cannot be published. It'll Cars be on Twitter. It'll number be on, one. Yes. <laughs> it'll be on Twitter in six weeks. Um, it's, it's my number one movie of the year. And it's been my number one movie, I think, since I saw it um, a little while ago. And um, yeah, I love it. I just, I, I love it to pieces. I think it really is amazing. And, and you saw Brad Bird, I'm sure, on Twitter over the weekend talking about how much he loved it. And I feel like, he might be a little bit frustrated because I feel like this is a the kind of movie that he always kind of wanted to make, but never really did. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I, I love it to pieces for all the reasons we've talked about and I'm sure we'll, I'll be revisiting it again and again, but yeah, I mean, what about I, in your Pixar list? Oh, I haven't, I don't know about my Pixar. I, I keep waiting for you to just say, just do your own Pixar list one day. <laughs> um, so I can do that, this but I cop out. You don't have one. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> don't I don't have favorite. one formally, but it is it is I think it might be my favorite Pete Doctor movie. Um but he's just so amazing. I mean, I I forget who I think Mike Sampson said like if you're not considering Pete Doctor one of the greatest living filmmakers, that should really change and I think it's just because he's in animation that we've seen people not talk about him in the same way that they breathlessly talk about other people. I just hope that Pete has at least one more movie in him because um, it would be a shame if John Lasseter was the, you know, the, the director with the most Pixar movies to his name. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, now he's running this company and he's he's keenly aware. I also want to shout out Pete Doctor also wrote one of my favorite books of like the last year and a half, which is the Mark Davis book. It's a two volume uh, Mark Davis book about the animator and Imagineer. Um, and so I think that. Pete is also very aware of like when animators kind of overstay their welcome, which I think was definitely something that was happening in the like early eighties, late seventies at Disney. So I feel like this might be his last movie just because he is so kind of hyper aware of that um, and overextending his welcome. But I I really do hope he has another, another movie in him because I mean, can you imagine what the next idea this guy is going to have? Well, when you talk about animators overstaying their welcome, do you feel like that's sort of like a realization that Lee Unkrich made? Because I just saw recently, like he was like now working on like a book about The Shining, and I know he's a huge Shining fan, but like yeah. the fact that he shifted gears to go do that. 
I have no I have no idea what happened to Lee. I think that is one of the weirdest things that has happened at Pixar. I mean, he's got two movies that are huge hits that are these kind of cultural milestones. He's been at the company forever and then he leaves like a few weeks after he wins the best picture. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me, but he has more money than God because those early guys who bought into Pixar when Disney bought them, they all became like, you know, multimillionaires, you know, 10 times over. So he's not really stressing about anything, but I, yeah, I do know that he's huge in the shining community. (laughs) You know, he helped fund room 237 a few years ago and he has this amazing collection of props. So I can't wait to see what that's about, but yeah, I don't know why Lee left. I feel like we had a few more good movies left in him, but I I do think you're seeing that with like, Domi uh, and Enrico finally having a feature next next year with Luca and, and Angus McLean, who's been such a great sort of stalwart in the company for so long. And, and I think that Pete is putting a premium on finding those voices and elevating them. And, you know, the other thing we haven't seen is people getting fired from Pixar movies like that hasn't happened under the doctor regime either. So we haven't seen things like, you know, the huge changes that affected Ratatouille and um, brave yeah and good dinosaur you know it's like so he seems to have a lot of faith in who he's chosen to sort of lead these things well yeah so i guess the i'll be very excited to talk with uh, y'all again when luca comes out (laughs) Uh, hopefully in the summer (laughs) yeah my god i hope yeah it's gonna be great i saw Uh, someone compare (laughs) the plot is the same as call me by your name (laughs) yeah Different time period. Who's Call Me By Your Name set? Early 80s, I think. Early Early 80s. So this is post-war Italy. See, what's going to be really weird is, like, there's a character, and it's talking peach. And he's just like, (laughs) (laughs) hey, guys, what's going on? And the peach is always drooling for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) If that was true, there would be an entire, as we all know from going to these press days, there would be an entire room just talking about how they got the peach exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the big challenge on this one was the peach fuzz. Oh, man. Peach Peach fuzz so hard. (laughs) All right, well, I don't think we can go any further on Pixar after that. So uh, let's uh, let's talk about Wonder Woman 1984. Um, The folks who brought you three white boys talking about soul, it's three white boys talking about Wonder Woman 1984. (laughs) The diversity of this podcast is off the charts, people. You'd... (laughs) Oh, I'm gonna get. There is a reason. Sort of... There is a reason for this very specific makeup, though, and and Matt, I think you'll get to it. In terms of who enjoyed and did not enjoy Wonder Woman on the uh, Collider staff. <laughs> well, first off, Drew is like our Disney expert, so we have to have Drew on to talk about Pixar. Um, right. But uh, you know, for Wonder Woman, we're a little divided here because I didn't like the film. Drew, you did like the film. I did like it. Yeah. And Adam kind of seemed to be in the middle. So this should be this should be interesting. Well, I, I already posted my review, and let, so let's start on a positive note. Drew, what what did you like about Wonder Woman 1984? I just really I liked how kind of bright and chipper and earnest it was. I think the Hans Zimmer score was great. I loved Pedro Pascal. I thought, I mean, he's like Jude Law from The Nest, but actually having fun uh, in the movie that he's in. Um, I, and yeah, I just I I liked its kind of goofiness. I think we're so fatigued by these kind of like larger than life, end of the world superhero movies. And this one was like 
there's a 10 minute stretch where they visit different malls uh, and uh, museums and stuff. And it's like, that's cool. I, I kind of like that. Uh, Mo from Mondo compared it to Batman Returns, which I feel like is a pretty apt. I've heard comparison. other people compare it to Batman Returns. Yeah. And so, yeah, I thought it was just, I, I, I liked it. I, I thought it was goofy fun. And it's totally, totally inoffensive to me, which is why, I, you know, obviously we're going to talk about the controversy, but that was kind of surprising. But Adam, where, where's your middle of the road take? <laughs> uh, so first of all, I watched this movie in two halves because we all got a screener and my screener crapped out at like the 48 minute mark, um, which I don't know if it helped or hurt my experience because I got like I was really enjoyed that first 48 minutes or so, which was, you know, it, it kicks off with the mascara, goes right into the mall sequence. You get that double dose of action. And then it really kind of lays back into kind of a, a romantic character piece. Um, just like dialogue and people talking and, and kind of interesting characters. And I liked the shading that Pedro Pascal's character got. And then as soon as Steve Trevor came back is when it crapped out. So I didn't get to the, oh my God, where did that man go? Uh, <laughs> until, <laughs> until the second half of my viewing. Uh, and so it hit a bit differently. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, to me, this is a movie with a lot of ideas. You can see that, Pat, I mean, Patty Jenkins has talked about how she loves Dick Donner's Superman. Um, and I don't love that film, but I love the idea of, I think especially now, a more romantic superhero movie, a, a superhero movie that isn't like wall-to-wall -wall action or feels like every 20 pages it needs to have some big beat or big twist. Um, and a superhero movie that ends in a conversation versus a fistfight. I do think this movie also is trying to do that, but also trying to service, you know, the superhero uh, fans with, uh, you know, the cheetah thing, I think, uh, for instance, doesn't really work very well for me. Um, I think it empathizes the the villain, Maxwell Lord, really well. I thought his character was super interesting, but I do think it comes at the detriment of Wonder Woman. I think that Gal gets a little short, short, uh, short end of the stick in terms of a uh, complete character arc in this one. But again, it's like it's a movie of moments that I really enjoyed. I think uh, um and we'll get into spoilers, but I want to talk about my favorite movie. Uh, so this part is spoiler free, but we'll let you know when we're going to go into spoilers because we have to talk about certain stuff. Um, but yeah, there was stuff in it that I thought worked really well, but there was stuff. It felt like maybe like a third draft or something. It, there were a lot of like competing, like like Patty was trying to stuff too many things in. Or, and I don't want to say it's only on Patty because who knows what, you know, Warner Brothers wanted or what Jeff Johns wanted because um, Jeff Johns covered the screenplay with Patty. Um, but it felt like a bunch of stuff packed into this thing and you, you needed to start kind of peeling away a few things to let what was there and what was really working really grow and shine. Um, and then there were a couple of decisions that I were just baffling to me. Like I cannot understand how it went all the way through this and no one was like, uh, so that guy's consciousness, where's it go? What happened to that guy? Yeah. I mean, that thing feels like they need, like somebody said, well, why does he have an apartment? And they said, oh, God, we got to figure out he, he's got an apartment. <laughs> yeah. He took over some guy. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I just, like, just bring Steve Trevor back. Like, no one's going to recognize him. Like, just yeah. bring him back. Right. Well, movie. Like, it's, we'll forgive it's, it. It's weird where the film says, like, this must be explained down to the thing. It must yeah. be explained. If it's if there's any room for confusion, we have failed. And in that way, they've created more confusion. So for Steve Trevor, it's like, well, he has his apartment. He has this whole thing. He has, like, clothes. Like, he can't just be brought back out of nothingness. 
also, here is a wall that we created out of nothingness. And I'm like, but wait, why does the wall (laughs) get to be magical? But Steve Trevor doesn't. Yeah. And like, that doesn't make, I don't understand. Or sort of like, I was reading like, like uh, Patty Jenkins did an interview with Joe Blow. And she's like, the reason we have two intros is because not everyone has seen the first film and maybe they're watching it on a plane. So we have to go back to Themyscira in the first part and then we have to do the mall sequence. So then you'll understand like who is Diana and where does she come from? And I'm like, are we making movies for people who skipped the first one and are watching this on a plane? Like, is that the tart? Like, how is it for the fans where you're like, we have to include these particular elements, but also for someone who has never seen the first film because the Themyscira sequence, like, I think as a set piece, it's actually really fun. I actually really enjoyed watching it. But as a as a story element, it doesn't really work because as a child, we're like the whole point of that whole thing is like Diana as a child learns you shouldn't take shortcuts. That's the lesson that she learned from this scene. And then the rest of the movie is she did not learn that lesson because she proceeds <laughs> to take a shortcut and then like the whole world starts falling apart. So the it there's no building from the prologue. It's just more things in Themyscira. So it, it doesn't really hold together like it should. And so it's one of these things where it's like, I don't mind going back to Themyscira, but you're not building anything with that scene. You're, and you're doing it to explain something to an audience member who didn't care enough to see your first movie. So why are we, yeah. why are we here? And I think that that scene was also supposed to sort of tie into the Olympics because it was supposed to come out this past summer. It was supposed to be Olympic themed. That's that way. I mean, and we have set visit coverage running that she says exactly that, that, oh, we did this because of the Olympics and we thought it was fun. That's a terrible reason to do a scene. <laughs> well, Olympics and people love the Amazonian stuff and Temescara and we didn't have it in the movie and we thought it'd be a fun way to open the movie. And I think it's a fun way to open the movie. I think it's fine. Like, especially because I also think another thing that's getting lost here is I think we're talking about Wonder Woman 84 in a vacuum when it's not surrounded by seven other superhero movies of varying quality throughout the year that you're like, well, at least it wasn't as bad as that or it didn't make, you know, it was better than Black Widow, but not as good as Eternals or any, you know, all that stuff got pushed. Like, hey. We were supposed to have Morbius this year. <laughs> like, we could be talking about Jared Morbius. Leto as a vampire. I feel like that would have been, I would have been like, fuck it. I'm fine with the Themyscira thing. It doesn't make sense, but at least it's nice. Like, looks nice and it's fun. At least it's not Jared Leto creeping around like a vampire in Morbius. <laughs> so I think that's something to keep in mind is that, like, I think everyone is so, like, they've had this pent up energy of, like, I just want to discuss and dissect a superhero movie and so we're all doing it in a movie that's kind of messy and like yeah, doesn't necessarily that's a good point because we certainly didn't we didn't belabor this as much as we were like when birds of prey came out and in the before times you know <laughs> we talked about it and then we all kind of just moved on with our lives yeah we're like it was fun you know it, a little messy but it was fun had a good time yeah and moved on yeah, I mean, it's also interesting that everyone has the, the biggest hot take in the world at the same time, too. And that it's, you've seen, we've watched Twitter all weekend just pick apart this movie it's endlessly. The Bono culture. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It Is was, Game of it, Thrones on again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was amazing to see that. I mean, that's sort of, I guess, the double edged sword where you have everybody loving soul and then like kind of railing against wonder woman all weekend uh was pretty it was pretty interesting and i thought it like i thought it was 
like well directed in terms of like the the action set pieces. And like, do, can we move into spoilers now? Yeah, let's move into spoilers. And again, this movie's on HBO Max, and now that HBO Max is like on Roku and Amazon Prime, like at this point, I would say, unlike Christopher Nolan, I think HBO Max is a fine streaming service, and if, <laughs> I would I would say it's filled with many good movies that you should get. So get HBO Max, watch Wonder Woman 1984, come back and listen. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so my favorite moment in the film is when she says goodbye to Steve. Uh, I think that it's this really beautiful emotional scene. I think the way the camera captures Gal, I think Gal's performance and the way she kind of like grief throws her lasso up into the air and the music, all of it brought to mind that No Man's Land sequence in the first Wonder Woman, which I think was a brilliant piece of construction. Like that is visual language that is telling you how to feel something and that is telling a theme. I don't think it's as thematically strong as the No Man's Land, no Man's Land sequence, but I think it shows that Patty knows what she's doing when she you know, gets to a scene like that or can get to, um, she's not an incompetent director, which I think is something that's really frustrating me of these people like, ah, oh, fire her off Star Wars. And like she's terrible at directing. That's a great moment. There are really bad moments in the movie too, but I don't think a, a, I don't think we should discount the moments that work really well in the film. No, I, to me, Wonder Woman is it's it's a very frustrating film. It, that's that's the thing. Like it, it's not it's not something where I'm like this has no redeeming qualities because I actually I think Pedro Pascal is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. as Maxwell Lord, uh, Drew. I totally agree with you that it's bright and colorful and it's like there that has those elements. I also thought. Even though I don't think the cheetah character is really that necessary to the film, I thought Kristen Wiig did a good job as Barbara. I thought that that was like, it was a compelling performance. But I feel like when I'm watching this film, it's a lot of Patty Jenkins sort of, she has the idea she wants to get to, but it's hard for her to reach that point. And so there's there's a difficulty with setup and payoff. So for instance, she's like, I want the invisible jet in my movie. And so we did, we had an interview with her and she had like, how did you get to the invisible jet? She's like, oh, we didn't know how to do it. And then we're like, well, the mascara is invisible. So why can't we make a, a, a plane invisible? And like, that's fine. But the way it plays out in the movie is they're in this plane and she's like, by the way, I can make things invisible. And then it just becomes invisible. And, <laughs> and he's like, like, no shit, really? And she's like, yeah, hold on. Hold I've on, never done it invisible. Before. And then it's like, so there's no setup there. There's not like a scene of her being like, I will make something invisible. And then after the plane is invisible, it never comes back that she has this power. It's just, we needed the invisible jet what's the quickest way between two points? All right, here's your invisible jet. And that's just really unsatisfying as a viewer. And I feel like that's sort of like what that's kind of recurs throughout the film about like, you have a place that you want to get to. So you have like, even the climax of the film, which is Wonder Woman telling everyone you have to give up your wishes. And the idea is that, and you see this in the first Wonder Woman, is that her special ability, I think for Patty Jenkins, is that she can, is that Wonder Woman can touch people's hearts and minds that she is someone that changes the way that people think through her empathy. And I think that's a really great place to take a superhero. The problem is, is that it exists within a a story where Wonder Woman is supposed to be a secret. And in 1984, a golden light emanated out of everyone's television set, told them to give up their heart's desire. Everyone agreed, and that was the end of it. (laughs) And so, yes, she can touch people's hearts and minds, but the way that you've done it just raises more questions than you've answered. Right. And there are a lot of, you know, inner um, DCEU questions, too. Like, so why did why in 1984 did she come back? Has she been dormant this whole time since World War One? I? I mean, Bruce Wayne and Superman made it seem like she was a complete surprise in Batman v Superman. Where 
did no one remember what happened in 1984? Like, I, it just, and it doesn't seem like she's retiring at the end of this movie either. So I, I wonder like where that's going to play out. But yeah, I think that's another thing to consider is, is so Justice League started filming in 2016 right after Batman versus Superman came out. And I saw an interview with Patty where she was talking about the costume and she was like, well, we couldn't change the costume because we wanted to make sure what Zach was doing was okay. And it was like, you know, at the time that she was making this film, the whole Zack Snyder fallout, you know, was still kind of. When did Wonder Woman 84 start filming? Because I, I don't remember, like, if Zack had left Justice League. Or, I mean, he was done by, I mean, because because Wonder Woman was done comes by out in 2017. It comes out in the okay. summer of 2017. Yeah. He's already off Justice League by then. And they're yeah. trying to, like, they're they're scrambling to do reshoots. Yeah. Um, and then so they didn't start filming on 80, Wonder Woman 84 until, like, I think, Gosh, I was I was on the set of Spider-Man Far From Home, and that was 2018. That was summer 2018, because I was talking with someone who had just been on the set of Wonder Woman 84, because they were both filming in London. The point being, like she said, she was still trying to work within whatever. But I think at that point, Warner Brothers was still trying to figure out, like, how connected are we going to do these movies and what's so I I do feel for her and that she was probably constrained by, like, how much latitude did she have in the storytelling of, of like, all right, how beholden do I have to be to what happens in 2016 for, you know, Wonder Woman? Right. But you're right, Drew, like she doesn't like give up or like retire at the end of this movie. So it's kind of unclear as to how this all fits together. Yeah, it's very confusing. I, I don't it know also what, feels like a different universe, which I kind of liked that she was just like, fuck the aesthetic. Like I'm doing because the first Wonder Woman was a little bit like gritty. Well, yeah, this one was just like, Zack yeah. Snyder as a producer on that one. I yeah, think. well, he's a producer on this one, too. Well, a producer because he was a producer on the first one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is how producing in Hollywood works. It is. You just get to be one forever until you're like you're Neil Moritz and they literally sue you to get off their franchise and stop <laughs> sucking up money that you didn't earn. <laughs> Uh, but yeah i think that there was uh, all of this to say when she was writing the script i'm sure there was a lot of like Ugh. well and she also said it was hurried so they pushed the release date up to december 2019 she was supposed to direct all of that limited series she was doing with chris pine um and all of a sudden she had to only direct the first two episodes and rush out an 80 page treatment so they had something and then Warner Brothers eventually pushed it to the summer of 2020, which is the release date she wanted. But it sounds like maybe the bulk of the story was kind of hurried and they had it and then they just worked off of that. Well, yeah. can I ask you about maybe the most controversial aspect of this movie? Yes. Should there have been more pop songs? On the yes, soundtrack? absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I don't do you... know. It's weird. It's a weird. There are weird choices. Um, I mean, the Hans Zimmer score is fine. It's weird that like the needle drop they choose is from John Murphy's Sunshine, which came out in 2007. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's just been used so many times. I mean, Murphy reorchestrated it himself for Kick-Ass a few years later, and it's just been used so many times since. But yeah, I mean, I, I really like the Hans Zimmer score. Somebody on Twitter was like, everyone is bitching about there not being songs that you listen to every week on Spotify. And yet you're given a great new Hans Zimmer score. So like, shouldn't you just focus on that? But yeah, there are some really weird choices. Um, I do wish they had sort of given into the like 80s aesthetic a little bit more. Um, that party sequence at the beginning. I mean, it would have been so much cooler if it had looked like the party sequence from someone. Uh, what is that uh, Ridley Scott movie? Somebody's Watching Me. 
uh, with Tom Berenger has a very similar party sequence at the beginning. And it would have been just so cool to see them just kind of replicating that a little bit more. But, um, you know, Captain Marvel should have looked like a Tony Scott movie, too. So I don't know why everyone is just they're very, very rigidly sort of sticking to a modern formula. But, yeah, it would have been nice if they had indulged in the 80s aesthetic a little bit more. It's also not like Hans Zimmer didn't write a bunch of cheesy 80s scores himself. So, like, you could have had him do it. Just drop in the legend score and... <laughs> yeah, it, I, think, I like that Actually, score a lot. Actually, that's Tangerine Dream. That's Tangerine. Just well, steal hey, it. I, yeah, put the Tangerine Dream score in there instead of Sunshine. But even, like, Rain Man or something like that. Like, the yeah. the very John Hughesian, like, doot, 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 doot. Yeah. That would have been fun. <laughs> this is our main gripe about yes, Woman 84. Yes. the score is not 80s enough yeah, yeah. well uh, no, the, just, sorry, go ahead adam i was gonna say that the cheetah thing is just like it doesn't make any sense because it's like first of all she gets two wishes and her second wish is i want to be an apex predator and it's like well where did this come from what is okay, it so and i rewatched the, re the movie here's what happens okay, okay. she she tells Maxwell Lord about this dream of becoming an apex predator. Then when he is absorbing everyone's wishes, he's sending some of that energy to her. He says, okay. like, give her your strength, give her your ferocity. And so she is being transformed as he is, is sort of getting the, the wholesale wishes coming in from around the world. So that's how he gives her the stuff. So. See, and this just feels like a very long road to get to a simpler point. Like, screenwriting should kind of be about economy and elegance. And so <laughs> if you want Kristen Wiig to become a half-human, half-cheetah hybrid, right. just have that be her wish. Just have that be like, just have her say, I wish I was an apex predator like a cheetah. And a monkey's paw dynamic will make her half-cheetah because right. that's the thing. And then you can still get to the thing like she's becoming meaner because she's becoming more animalistic. Instead, it's like, my wish is to be like Diana, and that makes me meaner because I traded my niceness to be like Diana, and now I get a second wish where I'm an apex predator that turns me into a half-human, half-cheetah hybrid. Right. That's a very <laughs> long road to get to something that you could have got. If you need it, and I also don't think Cheetah is that essential to this movie. It feels more like we have Cheetah in this film because Wonder Woman needs a physical foe because yeah. she can't like because it she'll, she'll just beat the crap out of maxwell lord but you know it, it it's always the film really struggles to put cheetah in there and so then to late to to belabor the point even more with like she gets two wishes and one of them makes her a, a half human half cheetah hybrid it, it doesn't work yeah it seems to have been inspired by her looking at diana's heels too at the beginning <laughs> of the movie yeah that's so all right. yeah it was weird too because I think their dynamic at the beginning is kind of fun and yeah. a little bit gayer than it needed to be, which I think I was very much for it even being even gayer than it was. But yeah, it they were it, good pals. Like just make them pals yeah. throughout the film. Yeah, I think there's been some writing too about how like where Cheetah is sort of in the continuity of the comic books now, and they are they are like sort of part of a team. Um so I don't know. Is she still alive at the end of the movie? Maybe she could be brought back, but yeah. Yeah, nobody dies. I mean, nope. I, the other thing is gals, I mean, okay, on the one hand, I understand, like, having been in a relationship with the same person for 10 years, I understand if I lost that person, it would be really hard to get over that person. Um, but then, like, to go to, like, 
oh, she's a worthless piece of shit without her powers. Like she starts losing her powers and it's just like, oh yeah, no, you're no good. Like you got to give up Steve so you can do anything. Like I, I feel like it could have gone a little bit stronger into showing other qualities that she like had other than like, oh, you're losing your powers. Yeah, you can do no good here. Yeah. It, it had big Thor Ragnarok energy where it was not about his hammer. And then in the, the following Avengers movie, there was like an entire 30 minute subplot about him needing a new hammer. Uh, <laughs> better, better be some hammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that aspect was a little frustrating. And I do I do understand the criticisms from a lot of people of of uh Wonder Woman herself is a little weak in this film. Yeah, I feel like she kind of gets overshadowed by Maxwell Lord. And I think that part of it is just Pascal's just giving such a big performance um, that it's hard to sort of tell a Wonder Woman story in that, especially when you're also sharing screen time with Cheetah. Right. It's just a I mean, lot of movie. No, you're right. And it, it does suffer from the like Iron Man 2 thing where Sam Rockwell is the only person with goals and, you know, Iron Man is the one who's sort of interfering with those goals. I mean, in, in structure and sort of classical filmmaking, Sam Rockwell is the hero of that movie. And in the same way, Maxwell Lord, he's the one that wants stuff. He's the one that's like getting stuff done. You know, Wonder Woman is kind of interfering with that. But the only thing she really wants is this this guy to come back. And he does sort of. Um, but, yeah, there isn't really a strong arc for her in the same way that they give the villains. Yeah, and I, it's, it's, I'm glad you mentioned Iron Man 2 because there are times where I was like, Wonder Woman 1984 feels a lot like Iron Man 2 where um, a friend of mine, uh, Russ Fisher, who uh, he, he we saw the film in 2010 and he's like, this movie's like a happy drunk. And it's like, it is. It's In a weird way, it's like a happy, like it doesn't really, it's not really coordinated and it's not really, you know, comes together, but it's having a good time. It wants <laughs> right. to have fun. So, you know. It's true. Yeah. So, I mean, if, 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 if Wonder Woman 84 worked for, for folks, you know, more power to you. I, it's a film I went into really wanting to like, because I liked the first one so much and I had high hopes for, I was hoping like, Oh, well, Wonder Woman 84 or the first Wonder Woman uh, from 2017 was really successful. They're going to give Patty Jenkins even more control. Um, they'll give her more money. Uh, the, the, the character has now been established, you know, what, what are they going to, you know, 84 seems like a fun setting. And so for me, for the film not to come together was was frustrating. Yeah. There, we should talk about the fact that a lot of the response on Twitter, though, has this weird misogynistic edge to it that... Um, Misogyny? On Twitter? <laughs> the hell you say? <laughs> Where, you know... In this establishment? Like, yeah. You know, like Ruben Fleischer or whatever his name is wasn't getting these kind of, you know, remarks after Venom came out, which is a terrible, terrible movie. But uh, yeah, it's it's been very weird to see that ugliness come out on Twitter too. I definitely yeah, there's definitely more unforgiving quality. I'll definitely say that. Yeah, and Venom similarly like a mess of tone, but people are like, oh, it's fun. Like have fun with it. Like it's fun. Yeah, Tom Hardy gets in a lobster tank. Yeah, <laughs> it's like sure, but it's a bad movie. Yeah, yeah, this kind of like delight in putting something down. Um, because, I mean, from from the critics I respect, I've seen people like you, Matt. It's like, I wish I liked this movie more. Like, I am yeah. bummed that I don't like this movie versus like, ah, fire Patty from Star Wars. And, you know, oh, what a terrible, terrible movie. Yeah, <laughs> really not that bad. And she's back for part three. So supposedly 
Also, it's weird where people are like fire so and so, like fire from from someone from Star Wars because they made a bad sequel. And I didn't hear that shit once after Star Trek Into Darkness. <laughs> 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 well, it's like that that Fincher adage of uh, after Alien Three. Uh, people were like, did you know you'd get another movie? And he was like, oh, yeah. He was like, I'm a white guy. Like, I knew that you get one. Like, you get a failure, and then you get to make another movie. He's like, I just had to make sure my second one was good. But, like, women don't get that latitude. <laughs> so, right. which is why Patty dropped out of directing Thor The Dark World. Because she was handed, like, the story changed, and they were like, well, this is the story we're going with. And she was like, I can't make a good movie out of that story. And I don't want to be the one who does it so give that shit to alan taylor who will get a second chance and, yeah, makes, and make fine. another terminator fight. he's another, given a terrible terminator movie a terrible terminator and then is given the sopranos sequel <laughs> so like and and game of thrones so infinite chances for mediocre white dudes <laughs> the podcast the podcast <laughs> we're gonna be changing the name of the collider podcast to mediocre white dudes <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I I thought Gal's performance was really good in it as well. I mean, it, despite the fact that I was I was a little disappointed by uh, her arc, I thought her performance was really good. Um, and the stuff with her and Steve was really fun. Uh, I don't really begrudge Patty trying to find a way to get Steve back in, even if it was a little hackneyed, because they're just so good together. So, yeah, I I actually really I don't really mind Steve coming back. I mean, yeah, it's weird to carry a torch for a guy for you know seventy some odd years, but. That doesn't really that part doesn't really bother me as much. I think it's sort of a you know a given given the events of the first film and the way that comic book stories are told. I just wish they had been more elegant about it rather than you will wear this man like a skin suit. (laughs) (laughs) Will go to hell. (laughs) Is it like is it a being? I'm so fascinated. Is it a being John Malkovich situation? Is it a soul situation? (laughs) Well, it also seems like they brought him back or they made her lose power so he could be a little bit more proactive. Yeah, this time. Uh, which I thought was sort of a weird decision because he talks about how didn't he say it with the first one he was like I get to play the girlfriend role and he he was was like into it it. yeah yeah yeah. and now they're like oh we gotta have him throw a punch and you know there's that weird scene where he like handcuffs himself to Pedro Pascal again something that is was never set up like you're gonna go handcuff yourself to the bad guy and then Cheetah just breaks it in the next scene so it's not like it like what's the reason for it yeah (laughs) very strange yeah I thought the, I mean, if we're in spoilers, I thought the ending was a really sour note as well, where she's like, oh, that man I had sex with, and he has no idea. And he's well, just like, oh, what a magical Christmas. Steve told us that that whole thing was a reshoot. So here's my question. Was there a version of this movie that did not have the body transformation at all? What if they, What if the reshoot at the end dictated that they change the beginning and have him inhabit this guy's body i don't think that would be the case maybe there are too many there are too many scenes of him like in the apartment and with yeah there's too much set up on the fact that him of taking over someone else's life and that's kind of what i wish i wish someone had asked jenkins about is like why did he have to why can't it just be he magically appears like the wall why does it he takes over someone else's body yeah yeah i mean do you think that could like thematically could that have could she have felt guilt about that earlier in the movie? And see, to me, like, that's, that to me is like, if that is what you're, if like, like, oh, I feel guilt for stealing this man's life, but that never comes up. Yeah. She never, no one, neither her nor Steve are like, huh, I have second thoughts about taking over this guy's life. They're just like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to use him up for a little bit. 
<laughs> what if that guy had died in the course of the adventure? That's like, an excellent question. <laughs> Again, all these problems that are circumvented by just saying he's magically back. <laughs> just magically back. Right. And I guess, I guess to maybe your point, it creates stakes in the sense of like, well, if Steve is magically back, can he be hurt? You know, can he be right. shot? But you can answer that. Like if he cuts himself or something, that answers that question. So again, the, this film always takes the long way around. Yeah, I, I don't get it. That's frustrating. Um, but it's fun. And at least it's super long. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, like I think it was helped that I watched it in like the first 48 minutes. And then the next day I finished, I watched a movie's worth of the second half. So. You saw the limited series version. Yes. You saw, yeah. you saw the Jenkins cut. The yeah. Snyder cut version. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, with that, let's uh, let's move into recently watched. Uh, Drew, what have you seen lately that you want to talk about? Well, I watched a movie that was on Vinny's list um, last night called The Wolf of Snow Creek or something, or The Wolf of, Wolf Snow, of Snow Hollow. Hollow. Yeah, which I thought was was pretty interesting. Did you, did either of you see it? I haven't yet because I still need to see Thunder Road, which is the his previous film. Yeah. It, yeah. Jim Cummings, who who wrote, directed, and stars in this, is a really interesting guy. Um, he yells a lot, which was very off-putting to my wife. She didn't understand why he was yelling so much. But uh, it's a really fun kind of like, you know, I think Vinny called it like a Coen Brothers style like horror movie. And, and it's pretty fun. And I think it was the last Robert Forrester performance. So that, yeah. that in and of itself is worth watching. But it's, a, it's an interesting movie. I would love to, to hear what you guys think of it. It's on my, it's on my watch list. I definitely want to yeah. see it. Uh, Adam, what about you? Um, Tis the season. We watched The Holiday, uh, the Nancy Myers film uh, with Jude Law, Kate Winslet, Cameron Diaz, Jack Black. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I've seen this movie a lot. Have you guys seen them? Like, is The Holiday a movie you've seen like once or is it a movie you've seen a lot of times? I, I've never seen it. Never seen it. Wow. Never. OK, this is a movie that's like perpetually on. Um, and I don't know, like is it's very long. I like the idea of it kind of more than I like sitting down and watching the whole thing from beginning to end, but it's got a lot of, I don't know. It's a, you, I think drew, you need to see it. Cause I think it's one of Hans Zimmer's best scores. Um, but I don't know. I, I just have this, like the, I think there are some movies that you like watching because like, it's a good movie. And there are some movies you like watching. Cause like you had like having them on. I think Nancy Myers is great at like creating an atmosphere and creating a world that you can kind of dive into. Um, but this is the first time in a long time I like sat down to like actively watch it. Um, and I don't know. I don't I, I think I have complicated feelings on it, but uh, it's a nice movie. I'm sure I'll watch it like seven more times. So. Cool. Uh, for me, I finally watched uh, Klaus on Netflix, which came out last year, but I didn't I didn't get around to watching it till now. And I, I thought it was terrific. Uh, the plot of the film is. Uh, it's about this guy who's like a postman and he's sort of an immature guy. And so his father, you know, to sort of toughen him up and give him some tough love, sends him to this remote outpost where he has to deliver 6,000 letters. And when he gets there, he discovers that this town of uh, Smearinsburg is like, they're always feuding. So no one's sending letters because everyone, like half the, t the town is divided into these two uh, warring clans. And then a little ways away, he discovers there's an old toy maker named Klaus. And essentially, it's like an origin story of Santa Claus and why kids send letters to Santa. 
but it's done with a great deal of charm. The animation is gorgeous. It's like this 2D, 3D hybrid, um, and it looks stunning. It has a great, it has a very dark sense of humor at points, which I really appreciated. Um, and it's just, it's really well made. I was just, I was, I was amazed by how much I enjoyed it. And I was a little angry that it took me this long to watch it. So Klaus is definitely going in the, in my holiday rotation from now on. Oh, that makes me so happy. Yeah. That, that movie is amazing. And I wish that Netflix did a better job about getting the word out about how good it is. The guy, the Sergio Pablos, the guy that directed it is like this amazing kind of conceptual guy who came up with the idea for Despicable Me and Smallfoot. But Klaus was the first movie he got to direct, and he did a bunch of amazing work for Disney, um, including on Treasure Planet. He he did uh, Dr. Doppler, which I think you could see in Klaus, kind of the similarities between the, the characters. But yeah, I'm glad you, you watched it, because yeah, it's amazing. Now you got to watch Over the Moon. Yeah, now I have to watch Over the Moon. Yeah. <laughs> Klaus is always in that Netflix top 10, too. So especially this time of year, it's been oh, in the nice. top 10. Yeah, a lot of people are watching it, I think. Um, all right. Well, thank you all so much for watching. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Uh, Drew, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, I am Drew Tailored, uh, like a tailored shirt on Twitter and uh, usually giving Adam some kind of grief on there. Yeah. So, yes. Can confirm. <laughs> and, and Adam, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, at Adam Chitwood, just my name, like a normal person, uh, not like an <laughs> article of clothing or anything. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you later this week to talk about our favorite films of 2020.